Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 31st, 2016. Coming up, a new study raises the question, does cell phone radiation increase the risk of brain cancer or does it increase lifespan? We'll hear more from CU electrical engineering scientist, Frank Barnes. And we'll talk with Peter Grace. He's the lead scientist of just published CU Boulder research about narcotic painkillers and rat studies taking opioids such as Percocet for just five days increases chronic pain, basically doubling the length of time it continues. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Last week, you may have seen the headlines in Scientific American and the Wall Street Journal regarding a $25 million study that found cell phone radiation boosts cancer rates in rats. Paradoxically, the study also indicated that rats exposed to cell phone radiation live longer. To sort out just what all this means in a world that's bursting with cell phones and other radiation and low doses, with us in the studio is Frank Barnes. Frank is Distinguished Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at CU Boulder. He's been studying issues related to cell phone radiation for over 40 years, and he's served on national and international panels about the health effects of cell phone radiation. Frank, let's just start talking about this study that has made headlines and worried some people and made other people gleeful about cell phone radiation. This study was done in rats. We have an ongoing research group of humans using cell phones. Why not just look at what's happening to people? Well, basically, you don't control what people do. There are a lot of other things going on at the same time, and you can control what you do with rats to a lot greater degree than you can with people. Well, how many rats were used and how long were they looked at? Close to 3,000 rats for two years. That's basically the lifespan of a rat. Yes. So they looked at them for two years. They took groups of rats, and I think in groups of about 90, exposed them to different amounts of cell phone radiation or low-dose radiation, or they did not. Yes. And what did they see? What were the kinds of cancers that came up in the rats? I don't remember the exact names, but there were two kinds of cancers that don't show up often. Otherwise, that they saw an increased percentage of cancers in the exposed rats than they saw in the unexposed rats. And I think it was primarily male rats, not female rats. They saw the order of about a 3% increase in the number of cases over what you would have expected. And that's not uncommon research for male rats to have a different reaction to the dose of whatever it is than female rats. But all of this does show that something happened. Yes. <laughs> and the question is, is it significant or not? And you'll find, you'll see arguments on both sides of this because the numbers and percentages are small enough so that you can argue all kinds of things. People can argue all kinds of things, but what has been said for many, many years is that there is no effect at all from radiation at low doses, such as with cell phones, because it's just, it may heat up your ear a little bit, but there's nothing else that happens. Do you believe that's correct? No, because we've been doing some work that shows that we can change the concentration of free radicals or radical concentrations with low doses of magnetic field, including the canceling out the Earth's magnetic field or doing things at three, four times the Earth's magnetic field. And we see definite changes in the amount of reactive oxygen and other biological proteins, etc. This study showed that some of the rats 
got a higher incidence of very rare brain tumors when they were exposed to cell radiation. But overall, the group of rats that was exposed to radiation as opposed to just living a normal laboratory rat life, they live longer. How do you explain that? question of how significant that is because of the particular group of rats and so forth. The very interesting thing in some sense is none of the controls wind up showing cancers of the kind that they're talking about. And that's a little bit of a surprise. It's a little bit of a surprise, and yet does it correspond some to what we're seeing in people when there are cancer clusters, call them what you will. It's, it's a hard name to use, but when health departments look at cancer incidences because people are concerned, say, around cell phone towers, where there's just a lot of cell phone tower radiation. Are these the kinds of cancers that seem to show up? Yes, there's an overlap in terms of some of these, I think. I'm an electrical engineer. I'm not an expert on one kind of cancer versus another kind of cancer, et cetera, but we do see differences in some of this stuff. Well, we've had some of these differences showing up in places close to the Denver area. Lookout Mountain in Golden has had 600 transmitters at different times spewing on radiation, and they did seem to have a higher incidence of cancers during the time that the beams from all of the broadcast groups were hitting not only the cell phone towers, but the people who lived around the cell phone towers. It was a puzzling situation because the cell phone towers were not above where the people lived. They were right at the same level. And twice the Colorado Department of Health and Environment conducted central nervous system tumor audits, and twice they found that there were statistically significant elevations in the tumors. Yeah, well, I had some students take a look on on Lookout Mountain, and it's very difficult to say just what the exposures were at particular houses because of the trees, the rocks, and so forth. So you almost had to go make a measurement on each single house in order to say what was reasonable with respect to exposures there. At this point in time, the way that the cell phone towers work there and the rate and all of the broadcast towers, it doesn't hit the people's houses as much. Okay, that's new since I last looked at this, which is so many years ago, but certainly that your general inclination is that if you've got smaller amount of uh, electric field or magnetic fields, if you've got reduced levels, you're less likely to see things. But that's not 100% true. We've seen cases where we increase exposures and reduce the growth rates of some cancer cells. So we see it go both up and down. And Frank Barnes, as a professor who's been looking at this for a long time as a scientist, you're talking about in the lab where you can control things very minutely and look at everything that's happening and still you see variations that you can't explain. Oh, yes. Well, (laughs) Well, good reason for that is we don't understand the biology very well. <laughs> I mean, it's simple in that sense. But no, we do see uh, timing makes a difference. We see both increases and decreases. And I think to understand this problem, you've got to explain why you don't see things most of the time and why you do see things sometimes. And it's a, it's a complicated puzzle. There are feedback and repair processes. Uh, every time you cut your finger, you don't bleed to death. Okay, it repairs. So you've got repair processes and adaptive processes in the body that probably take care of the perturbations most of the time. Frank Barnes, you were mentioning to me that in some kind of test you've seen if a lab animal doesn't have cancer yet and it's exposed to radiation, like cell phone radiation, 
and then it gets cancer, somehow it helps, but if it already has cancer, it hurts, as an example. Yes, there's a study that is reported by VJ, and I've, her last name is longer than I can remember. But anyway, that shows that if you wind up with exposures prior to introducing a cancer-causing agent, you inhibit the growth of the cancer, so it grows more slowly than would be expected. If you put the cancer-causing agent on at the same time, you pride the exposure, it grows faster. All right, this is very paradoxical and very complicated. I believe this study costs something like, what, $25 million? Yep. And we still don't have very good answers. Well, it depends. it's the kind of study that isn't going to show the details of the physics and chemistry and the chemistry to the biology that's going on. You're looking at a end result that includes the feedback and the repair processes. It includes the various abilities of the animal to adapt. You're also not looking at much in the way of compound stresses because these animals are, you're purposely not exposing them to a lot of other things. So you're looking at only one source of perturbation or one set of disturbances where the normal person winds up with all kinds of stresses going on besides any stress they may or may not be getting from uh, cell phones or related radio waves. Well, Frank Barn, I believe that you're still going to be doing research on this even though you're a retired professor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've got some graduate students and some undergrads who are helping you with this kind of research. And in the meantime, you also have some suggestions for families, for instance. Do you think that children should be using a lot of cell phone? I would certainly minimize that to the, use it when it's necessary. Short-term exposures probably don't cause a lot of problems, but extensive use, I think, indicate there are indications that can cause problems. How about what kind of headphone that I use. If I use a headset with my cell phone and it has a wire, is that better than if I use a headset that's a Bluetooth? Well, maybe. I don't know. Again, I don't think we understand the situation well enough to, to call that. What I think really needs to be done is to get a detailed understanding of what how you go through cause and effect, and we're not, we're not close to that. What can we do to get close to that? Well, it's going to be doing some work on the, uh, how you go from the physics through the chemistry to the biology, understanding the multiple pathways in the biology, understanding the feedback and repair processes, and understanding timing issues. Because we have issues where you show things at one time, you get one result, and you do it at another time, you get a totally different result. And I think you've got to understand these processes in a lot more detail than we do today. And that's a big research project for a long time. Frank Barnes, we want to thank you for being here this morning. Frank Barnes, Distinguished Professor of Electrical Engineering at CU Boulder, talking about this new study about cell phone radiation does cause an effect. It's just not clear exactly how or why. Yep. That's how it is. <laughs> You're tuned to How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life. You are only waiting for this moment to arrive. I'm Shelley Schlender. You turn to How on Earth. There's a lot of people in the world right now who are kind of like blackbirds with broken wings. They have chronic pain. And chronic pain is something that can change someone's lives in very devastating ways. 
a new study by Peter Grace, research assistant professor of neuroscience at CU Boulder, indicates that one of the most common ways of dealing with chronic pain may be backfiring. It's narcotic painkillers. His new study shows that these narcotic painkillers, even if given for a short amount of time, can actually increase the length of time that chronic pain lasts. Peter Grace, welcome to KGNU. Thanks very much for having me. What made you interested in this issue of chronic pain in people? So it's a, an area that has a, a lot of need. Pain's not treated well, and, and these patients uh, suffer a great deal, so it's something that's really worth looking into. What is the main way that people deal with chronic pain today? What is one of the leading ways that insurance companies and doctors deal with chronic pain? Drugs are really the primary way that the chronic pain is managed, and opioids are really the leading drug class um, that's used today. Have they been studied for the long-term use that they're being used for? No. So what's surprising is that um, there aren't any studies that have looked at the long-term effects of opioids, either good or bad, past a year. Peter Grace, there are a lot of people using opiates for more than a year prescribed by their doctors. There are 250 million prescriptions basically a year for opiates in the United States. Yes, these drugs have been around for millennia and so I think they've escaped a lot of the, the scrutiny that modern pharmaceuticals might come under. So they've been grandfathered in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Even though for 10 years the National Institute of Health has reported research that if you can get someone with chronic pain off of opiates through cognitive behavior therapy, through trauma therapy, through meditation, generally their perception of pain goes down 30 to 60 percent. That's been known for 10 years. It has. What our study advances then is, is how long the pain can last for uh, once the, in this case, the rat comes off the opioids. Okay, let's go to your study. You started by giving rats nerve pain. How did you do this? We tied a, a little cuff around the sciatic nerve, which is the main nerve that runs down the leg. Oh, people with sciatica. That's the pain where if they move wrong, they have this burning sensation up and down their leg. It's not very pleasant. No, it's not, but that's that's exactly the sort of injury. Now, you, you squeezed the sciatic nerve. You put a little band around it that over time dissolves on its own. How long does it take for that to dissolve? And these rats, though recover from that injury after about five weeks. That's about how long it takes for this band to slowly dissolve. That's right. And the, the nerves uh, damaged a little bit uh, during that process as well. And so over that five weeks, as the band dissolves, the nerve starts to regenerate and heal. Okay. So you had the control group of rats where you banded their sciatica nerve and they had that awful pain. But as the band dissolved, their pain lessened until by the end of five weeks, the pain was gone? Yeah, exactly. Okay, you had another group of rats where for the time where the pain was the most intense when you first put on the band, you gave those rats five days of a narcotic. What was the narcotic? It was morphine in this case, which is the prototypical opioid. Okay, let's talk about what morphine is and kind of what you can buy at the drug counter. There's Percocet, there's, what? let's name off some of these. Percocet, uh, Vicodin, Oxycontin, uh, Tramadol. Uh, we've got a whole host of these drugs available. How about codeine for cough syrup? Yeah, so codeine's another one that is metabolized in the brain to, to actually uh, become morphine. Heroin, methadone? Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of these illicit drugs as well. 
So illicit and legal drugs, and by the way, in terms of drug overdoses and death, are these the ones, these prescribed drugs that are most common for drug overdose deaths in the United States? Yeah, in the last decade, there's been a huge spike in the number of um, overdose deaths that are related to prescription opioids. Okay, so that's just another background on these drugs. Now, you gave the rats who were the test rats five days of this morphine to kind of the time where the pain would have been the worst. Yeah, exactly. So we did that uh, 10 days after um, we performed the injury so that the pain was fully established. And what we surprisingly found was that while the control rats that didn't get morphine were recovering uh, four to five weeks um, afterwards, the rats that had morphine were, were taking twice as long to recover. So they had pain for 10 or 11 weeks. Let's pause and think about this some more. Peter Grace, the rats that didn't get any morphine at all, who had the pain, and then when the problem went away, the pain went away. The pain was gone after five weeks. The rats who got five days of morphine, that's all it took, had longer pain, twice as long of pain. That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, a pretty dramatic finding that the what we're actually using to manage the pain uh, may actually be contributing to the problem. All right. You even looked at why this might be happening. Can you explain that? Yeah. So we're interested in these immune cells in the spinal cord called glial cells. Glial cells. Those are not your nerve cells. Those aren't the ones that if you touch something, you go, oh, I just touched a piece of wood or I touched a fire. Exactly. So they're there to support the nerves in the spinal cord and brain. 90% of the nerves in the brain are actually glial cells? Exactly. So yeah, only 10% of your brain is actually neurons. And these used to just be thought of as kind of like... Packaging. Packaging it, like like styrofoam peanuts or something. Exactly. To kind of buffer the brain. But what are you seeing instead about how they work? They're very sensitive to any alterations um, in the brain and spinal cord. And when they they sense those changes, they react by releasing these uh, substances that can then act on these neurons and change their activity. Okay, so they respond to neurotransmitters, but what they send out as signals is basically inflammatory or alarm signals. You've, you've described them as they're the folks, they're the cells that control the dimmer switch on whether or not the body should be paying attention to a pain or ignoring it. Right. So after some sort of injury like we did here in the rats, these glial cells are activated and they start releasing these inflammatory um, signals that are then enhancing the pain signals from the neurons. And so if we shut those glial cells down, we're actually able to eliminate the pain that's um, as a result of that injury. Okay, you've just jumped ahead to something else that you did in this experiment, which is that you used a new drug that has a terrible name called DREAD. Can you explain what that stands for? Yeah, so the DREAD is an acronym for a designer receptor exclusively activated by a designer drug. And what that means is that we've taken a, an engineered receptor that we're able to selectively express on these glial cells so that when we give them this drug, that drug's not going to touch anything else in the body except for this new receptor. And so in that way, we're able to selectively shut down these glial cells. What happened to the rats where you gave them the dread stuff. If we inhibited the, the glial cells um, via the dreads during the morphine administration, we were able to completely prevent that uh, doubling in pain duration. Did the rats have as much perceived pain as the controls when they were on morphine along with the dread drug? So it actually makes the morphine work even better. That way, these rats are still getting that full pain relief from the morphine, but we're just uh, cutting out these long-term negative side effects. 
Are you part of the group that's trying to patent the dread drug? Someone already beat us to that. Uh, one of the co-authors on the study uh, kindly provided us with these drugs here. Well, and so I hear you saying that there may be hope for still being able to use morphine for real pain because you could use the dread drug to help the dimmer switch be at the right level. Right. So morphine is still a, a fantastic drug for acute pain. It works better than anything else that, uh, that we have in our arsenal. So we don't really want to give it up. But if we can eliminate some of these problematic effects by inhibiting the glial cells, for instance, you know, then we can uh, really have the best of both worlds. That's optimistic. It is. And I think this study, even though it identifies a pretty major problem, I think it is an optimistic study. Now, Peter Grace... You're also talking about a study where when someone finally looked at how opioids work, they found out some bad news. Dreads have not been studied very much. We don't yet know what the side effects of dreads may be over time in that glial cells have a purpose. Their purpose is to show, gosh, there's pain. There's something happening here that we need to do something about. And what your opioid study showed is that if you inhibit the glial cells, then there's unintended consequences. Do we know yet what unintended consequences there could be from dreads? We don't yet. The advantage of dreads, though, is that they're really selective. So a lot of the side effects that we have from drugs that are on the market now are due to off-target effects. So they're acting at other cells, at other systems, where we don't really want them to be. And that's where the, the dreads have a better profile, I think, because they're targeting exactly the system that we want. Are they available for humans to use right now? No, they're not. Uh, they're still very much experimental, but there's certainly interest in, in taking them through to the clinic. All right, so they're not going to be available to people for five years or so. Yeah. In the meantime, what are some things that have looked to be useful for people who have chronic pain and need to have a way to deal with it? The integrative pain clinics that, that use cognitive behavioral therapy are, are probably the best approach that we have right now. A cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, mindfulness, trauma therapy, exactly physical uh, therapy, physical therapy. Um, we've we've got a study uh, just out as well showing that exercise uh, is wonderful for chronic pain. It can both prevent and and treat existing chronic pain. Okay, let's go through a list of some other things here. How about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which over long-term use damage connective tissue? Are they a good option? They're probably not strong enough as well for some of the the pain that. The these patients are suffering for. How about whiskey? <laughs> as long as you keep it uh, to a, a low level. Okay, so you're still saying that these therapies which interact with a person, physical therapy, cognitive therapy might be better. Now, I've got another question. If I have surgery or if I have a root canal, what do you think? Could I still use opioids for that? Yeah, I, I think in the short term, they're excellent. You know, we did five days in this rat study. I, th I think the timescales between rats and humans is obviously going to be very different. Um, so I wouldn't directly extrapolate there. But um, yeah, over the short term, it should be fine. How about people who are using painkillers for more than five days? Right. Um, I mean, that's something, a conversation that people should have with their doctors, um, you know, about whether um, that's the best approach. For some of these chronic pain conditions, there are some other excellent drugs, um, anticonvulsants, antidepressants like uh, pregabalin, amitriptyline are, um, are wonderful drugs, particularly for the nerve pain, which we were studying here. Do you think that these kinds of studies could change what our healthcare policy is, where it's easy to get insurance to pay for a drug? It's harder to get insurance to pay for long-term physical therapy or cognitive therapy. 
It'd be wonderful if we um, if we went down that road because we need a far more integrative approach than just pharmaceutical therapy. We've been talking with Peter Grace. He's with CU Boulder, an expert in neuroscience. Good luck with your work. Thanks very much for having me. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer, and I'm the show producer for this show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.